Before we look into God's word, I want to read you a brief email that I received uh, early this morning. Um, It'll be soon time for us to vote on our congregation's budget for 2014, and, and the committees will soon start working on that. One of the line items that you'll notice perhaps in our congregational meeting is under our missions fund, our missions funding, is a line item called Special Missions Projects. And what Special Missions Projects is for is money the congregation has set aside to provide special things that our missionaries uh, need Our outreach partners might need, in particular when they come back to the States, um, or just in, in particular for, for uh, special occasions. Um, for example, we have purchased for uh, several of our outreach partners Kindles over the years, reading devices. Uh, one year, uh, one of our mission, uh, outreach partners went to a marriage conference, and we paid for their hotel while they were there. We send them gift cards to restaurants. We, um, one time when one of our outreach partners came back to the States, we gave them gift cards to the mall so that they could buy new clothes because it was in the opposite season of where they had come from. Uh, various things like that. It is a, um, I jokingly refer to it, it's not this, but I jokingly refer to it as our missionary slush fund. Well, uh, not too long ago, we used money from that fund for uh, Todd and Debbie Kramlick, and we bought them tickets for their family to go to Hershey Park. Here's, she wrote me a note. Uh, Dear Joel, I wanted to write you and the mission committee countless times since we arrived back in Germany. The tickets to Hershey Park were such a special end to our time in the U.S. this summer. We did not tell the kids we were going, but happened to drive by. The kids were ooing and eyeing the roller coasters and begged to go, so we asked if they wanted to help pay for it. Some volunteered to give all their money, a total of $5, while others, while others volunteered to pay half. We stopped and told them that they did not have to pay anything, and it was a gift from the church just for us. We had the perfect day there. All the kids went on multiple rides. The lines were manageable. No one got lost, which if you have seven children is a matter for praise. And we even got a really cool sign made for the family with all our names on it and an Amish buggy to remember Lancaster. It came at a time when we were pretty worn out, right before we were headed back into the craziness of starting school and getting caught up on all we missed in the 10 weeks we were gone. We all appreciated your thoughtfulness so much in offering this and making it possible for us. It was definitely one highlight of our trip. Thanks for all the love you have showed our family. Grace has always made us feel so welcome and prayed for and loved. I cannot express how much this means to us when we show up weary and travel worn. I also appreciate how many people stay in touch with us through reading our newsletter and praying for us. So I pass it on to you. You often don't see what happens. The money that you put in the offering, some of it you know, pays for the lights and some of it pays for the uh, electricity and some of it uh, uh, keeps people on the field and some of it we try to provide um, extra blessings for those who uh, serve. So I pass Debbie's thanks on to you. I have a number of books on my shelf uh, by Phil Yancey. Uh, Phil Yancey is a good writer. He's particularly helpful for people who are suffering, and he writes really well for those who are confronting the legalism that can sometimes uh, grow in conservative fundamental Christian uh, movements. Uh, Phil Yancey, in addition to his writing, though, is a runner. Uh, he has, among other races he's complete, uh, competed in, he's done, completed the Chicago Marathon, and he writes about his writing in several different places. And uh, he has a particular problem when he runs. Yancey is uh, prone to developing a callus on the outside of the big toe on his right foot. 
Now, in one sense, this callus is, is a good thing. It's, it's a protective body of cells. It's meant to cover a sensitive spot on his skin. What would happen if no callus formed? Would it wear down to the bone? I, I don't know. But it's a good thing in, in one sense. But um, as he keeps running, the callus continues to grow and thicken to the point where it, it eventually falls off or sometimes to help ease some of the discomfort, he, he cuts part of it off. And then it starts to grow again. Um, Yancey's a runner. He's trying to exercise, but he's beset with this persistent problem that keeps coming up. Compared to the square area of his entire foot or his entire body, it's really a small place. But you know how much a small place can, can affect your outlook and your ability to move. I want to suggest to you today that this uh, recurring callus might help you think about your sin. In particular, your past sin. Now, uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're not only very happy that you're here, uh, but you should know that you have, when you have come to join us, uh, you gathered with a group of people, we share the common conviction that we are sinners. I know the word sin is a church word, it's a religious word, it invites uh, mockery, but it's a useful word. The Bible uses it all the time to describe our condition before God. In different contexts, it says we are rebels, we're traitors, we're lawbreakers, we're trespassers, we're destroyers, uh, we're sinners. We're not angry about it. We're not angry at you about it. This is what we are. In hundreds of ways, we push back and push back against what God has created us to be. In, in this world that he made, we're guilty. And today what I want to do is I want to think with you about a particular kind of guilt or shame. One that lingers. The sort of guilt that, that keeps coming back. You may be a committed follower of Jesus Christ and a person who often feels tremendous gratitude for forgiveness. And, and you often go for several days or even a, a few weeks without thinking about it. But, but then it comes back, that, that memory, that sharp recollection. You, you remember what you have done, and in your mind, you always think of it as the sin. The sin. The thing you have done that always comes back to mind, that haunts you. It's like a callus that keeps coming back and keeps growing. It's persistent. It's nagging, this memory. You erroneously think that all of your other sins, all the things, that, all the things you have done except for the, the sin, belong in one category. And you have no trouble putting forgiveness marked on those, the, that category, that box. Uh, you know, you've lied, you, you've cheated, you've, you've uh, been lazy, watched too much television, you, you've uh, wasted money, you were angry at the wrong person at the wrong time in the wrong way. All those, all those things in your mind belong in the, the sin box, the, the forgiveness category. But then there is this other category. It's the one with the sin in it. And you know, because you read the Bible well enough, that, that you know, it belongs in the forgiveness box, but it just, it just keeps popping out. And you keep, you keep seeing it, it again. And you think to yourself, if I just hadn't done that one thing, I would be so much freer. It's the sin. It's probably something so secretive, so shameful, almost no one knows about it. You abused somebody. 
you had an abortion. You committed adultery, some other grievous sexual immorality. You had a fight with somebody that was so bad and you said things that were so awful that you just destroyed your relationship with them. Your brother, your sister, maybe your parents. You have not talked to them for 12 years because of what you did. And when we take communion and when we have those moments of meditation and reflection, that's what comes to your mind. The sin. A recent study by LifeWay suggested that 50% of Americans are weighed down, burdened by some sense of regret over a sin like this. I, I don't think this morning that I'm going to be able to help remove that from your memory. I don't think I'm going to be able to help you from those things from coming back to your mind over and over again. But what I want to do is is I want to help you know um, what to do when it comes back. How to respond in that moment when the sin comes to your mind again. And I want to help you do that uh, by unfolding a passage of Scripture that's contained in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. I'd like you to turn there with me now, if you would to Leviticus chapter 16. Wonderful to hear the pages uh, turning in your Bible. Can't hear you scroll there, but I can hear pages turning to Leviticus 16. Um, while, you're, while you're settling in Leviticus 16, let me just uh, mention something uh, that uh, I received some very br- uh, helpful feedback last week uh, for my sermon on Leviticus 15. Some kindly suggested to me uh, that I should have made extra provisions for children's programs that day. Um, that was that's probably uh, good counsel. Um, others have said to me, and I've heard this from a number of sources, that, that reading and discussing Leviticus chapter 15 in public, that must mean that I am a very brave person. And I have almost always deflected that comment by saying that there is a thin line between bravery and stupidity, which is another thing that people have said to me, too. So um, most people don't realize, actually, this, uh, it, is, it is remarkably easy to open the Bible in this congregation. Um, preaching is not always easy. Sometimes it's very hard work. But to do it here is incredibly uh, fulfilling. There, there are thousands of churches like this in the world where this is true. Uh, we happen to be one of them. It's a mark of God's grace. But I, I stand in, in front of a group of people, whoever stands behind this pulpit, stands in front of a group of people who want to know what the Bible says with as much clarity and directness as possible. And you'll not, you're not going to be satisfied if anybody who stands here behind the Bible tries to hide what it says or apologizes for what it says or ignores what it says. This is, this is the mark of God's grace, and it means that opening this book to any page doesn't require much courage at all. Now, you should have your Bibles open here to Leviticus chapter 16. And if your Bible has titles like mine, it says, The Day of Atonement. And this is probably the most important passage, the most important chapter in the entire book of Leviticus. Remember that the key issue before us in Leviticus is this. How can unholy people live in the presence of holy God? 
This was originally written to an ancient group of people, the Israelites, and they enjoyed a unique relationship with the Creator, unique among all the nations of the earth. This, this nation, among this nation, God moved. He chose to take up residence with them, and it brought tremendous blessings. Uh, protection, prosperity, wisdom, peace, strength, honor, but it also brought certain liabilities. Chief among them, God is holy and people are not. How can they be safe? How can you ever be safe as an unholy person in the presence of a holy God? Uh, In his book, The Silver Chair, C.S. Lewis, I think, tries to capture this. It's a scene that focuses on a very, very thirsty young girl named Jill. Uh, You'll remember that that central to all of the characters, all of the novels in Lewis's series is, is Aslan, the lion. Listen to what Lewis describes. When Jill, Jill stopped, we're walking, she found she was dreadfully thirsty. There was perfect silence except for one small persistent sound. She listened carefully and felt almost sure it was the sound of running water. Jill looked around her very carefully. There was no sign of the lion but there were so many trees about that it, might be easy, that it might easily be quite close without her seeing it. But her thirst was so very bad now, and she plucked up her courage to look for that running water. She came to an open glade and saw the stream bright as glass, although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before. She didn't rush forward and drink. She stood still as if she had been turned into a stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just this side of the stream lay the lion. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do, not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer. Do you eat girls? She said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill. Coming another step nearer, I suppose I must go look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. If a lion moves into your neighborhood, good news, the wild dogs will be at bay. Thieves and robbers will stay away from your house. But how do you keep from being eaten yourself? Since holy God has moved in, the book of Leviticus has a number of strategies uh, for keeping the people safe. There's this long series of sacrifices that people must bring. Then there are instructions about mediators, people who will bring, men who will bring the sacrifices. And last week we, we finished talking about this long series of rules about separation. Rules for maintaining separation between holy and unholy things, between clean and unclean things. And the priests were supposed to teach the people about this, these regulations. It must have been a trying task. 
I wonder over the last few weeks as we've been talking about them, if you have been looking at these clean and unclean regulations and if you've seen yourself there, oh, I'm unclean. I don't think you, you can't read it without thinking about that. If you live during this period of time, would you be clean or unclean at, at any given time? You, you can't help but wonder that. Does anybody have mold or mildew growing in your house? Oh, that's a problem. Uh, there are lots of babies in the church and childbirth brings uncleanness. Uh, the Israelites lived in the desert and certain bugs in contact with their carcasses made you unclean. What if this law was given in Lancaster County? Stink bugs are unclean. <laughs> if you touch their bodies, you're unclean. Some of you say, how oh, we used to use a Kleenex. Doesn't count. You're still unclean. Uh, there's debate about this. Commentators disagree. But it seems like most Israel's, Israelites spent most of the time unclean. Uh, there was all these commandments they had to follow, and then there's these regulations about ritual impurity. And this, this sense of, of guilt or of, of uh, just despair must have hung over them like a stalled tropical storm, except, except for this one day. This one day of the year when everything was cleansed, everything was washed away, and everything was made fresh and clean and new. It was the tenth day of the seventh month. It was Yom Kippur. It was the Day of Atonement. This is the chapter that contains a description of that ancient ritual. And what I want to do is I want to walk with you through it this morning. Uh, then I want to consider what it teaches us about how to respond to this lingering guilt of this, uh, over the sin that haunts and that keeps coming back. Now, let's start here in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. We're going to read uh, quite a bit of this chapter. I'll stop every now and then to make uh, comments on it. Notice here, first of all, the restrictions or the limited access placed on Aaron in chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Verse 1 takes us back to chapter 10, where Aaron's sons had entered God's presence carelessly. Uh, without any sort of a consideration or appreciation for the fact that he is holy, and, and they were unholy, and, and they die. This is serious. This is sobering. And actually, it's, it's a reminder to us that there is a certain rightness about the sin. There's a certain rightness about that being a haunting presence in your life. It, there's a certain rightness about it being there because that sense of, of hauntingness is at least rooted in reality. Now, I, I think the Bible would like to come and fine-tune your uh, understanding of, of shame. It needs adjusting and clarifying. But it, at least it's rooted in reality. Taking the Bible seriously means acknowledging its claim that no one deserves to be welcomed into God's presence. No one deserves to be approved by Him. No one by their own merits or by their own virtue or by their own character or works is able to stand in God's presence. We all stand rightly condemned by him. I wonder how that strikes you. 
It's actually one of the most disturbing claims of Christianity. I have a recording of uh, soloist Gerilyn Steele singing Amazing Grace. She has a beautiful voice. But when she sings Amazing Grace, uh, she, she changes the words a little bit. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's what John Newton wrote. She sings, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. And I understand why she changed the words. This is depressing. This, is, this emphasis on our unworthiness makes us all sound horrible. It's depressing. It's off-putting. We sang in the song, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Did we not? As such a worm as I. And it doesn't sound fair, really. I mean, who does God think he is? <laughs> it's a question that answers himself, itself, doesn't it? Who does God think he is? He thinks he's God. He's the master of us all. He himself establishes the parameter of the world he has made. And part of you recognizes the logic and the justice of that. I mean, imagine for a minute that you like to tinker. I'd like you to think for a minute that you like to work with your hands. Some of you do. Some of you, this, uh, uh, you won't need much imagination. But imagine that you invented a machine, an incredible machine, an exercise machine, that if used for two minutes a day will make everyone, regardless of their habits and diet, everyone target in on their ideal body weight. Such a machine does not exist, but imagine that you invented it. It would be worth a fortune, wouldn't it? You could sell that machine and be a gazillionaire. Now, what would happen if you invented this machine and you saw your neighbor selling your machine? Or the plans for your machine? What would you say to them? Hey, <laughs> that's mine. I made that. You can't sell it. You don't have the right to use that, my invention that way. What, what, is, what if he looks at you and says, eh, who are you to tell me what to do with this machine? You respond. You would respond by saying, I have the right to do it because I made it. And there are patent laws that tell me I have the right to determine what happens to this machine. And I have the right to benefit from this machine. We have this, we have this internal sense of justice, don't we? That that's, that's right. That's fair. That's the way things should be. You, you feel the weight of this claim. And it's the same claim that the Bible makes for God over all people. By his authority, we recognize we don't measure up to his standards. Verses 3 and 4 are about Aaron's attire when he goes into the holy place, the holy, holy of holies. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place, verse 3. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. Now, this is a very different outfit from what Aaron is supposed to wear. Normally, the high priest would be bedecked with, with beautiful colors and jewels and gold. Here, though, he puts on this very simple, very plain linen uh, outfit. When Aaron the priest speaks to the people for God, he comes in gold and jewels. When he speaks to God for the people, he dresses like a slave. Verses 5 through 10 here, we have some instructions about the preparation. What's he supposed to do? From the Israelite community, he has to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burn offering. 
Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. We'll talk about that again in a minute. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now we have details of the sacrifice in verses 11 through 28. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer uh, full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. This is the place that God is going to appear. He's going to appear above the Ark of the Covenant, this box that contained the Ten Commandments. God is going to appear there in particular, and Aaron, in order to protect himself from seeing God, that's why he brings the incense to create smoke in the, uh, the, holy place, the most holy place here. God's going to appear. This is where atonement is going to take place. Why does God appear there and why does atonement take place there? Well, God is going to appear there above the the cover, which is called the atonement cover, sometimes the, the mercy seat. God appears there and if God looks down through that cover, he sees in the cover the Ten Commandments. And seeing the Ten Commandments, he knows and remembers how guilty his people have been. What's going to happen here is that Aaron is going to take and he's going to sprinkle blood on the atonement cover. He's going to cover the commandments with the blood so that God will know a death has already taken place. For these lawbreakers who broke this law, there's already been death. Uh, Look here, verse 15. He shall then, uh, well actually verse 14. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then, now the bull was for his own sins, verse 15, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now, notice here something that's uh, very important here. The tabernacle itself is cleansed. Remember that sin defiles and the most holy place has to be purified. Um, I, I've never been in one, but I've seen television shows or read books where they have them, uh, where they have uh, top secret special laboratories that are supposed to be completely sanitary, no germs, no bacteria. And, and what kind of steps do you go through in order to enter one of these special labs? You have to shower. You have to put on special clothes. They have negative pressure. That is so that the air always pushes out of these rooms so that nothing can get in because they're doing experiments there that that bacteria will defile. And the sin of the people is just a defiling presence. And, And Aaron, as it were, is sanitizing the most holy place. The tabernacle, the altar, they need to be cleansed. 
Now, verse 20, we have the most unique part of this day. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Um, Your translation, instead of saying scapegoat, it might actually have the Hebrew word. It appears for the first time in verse 8, Azazel. It's a Hebrew word, and it says Azazel because we're not exactly sure what the Hebrew word means. The English word scapegoat was created by the English uh, Bible translator John Wycliffe. Some people think that Azazel refers to a personal name, so that in verse 8 there's one goat for Yahweh and one goat for Azazel. And Azazel supposedly is the name of the goat demon who lives outside the camp. Well, the problem with that is that chapter 17 specifically forbids giving anything to the goat demon who lives outside the camp. Uh, The best guess that we have here is the word Azazel is some Hebrew combination of the words for goat and where it's supposed to be going, the wilderness, or this is the goat that leads, or the goat that goes out to a remote place. The best guess. The the point of the text, though, regardless of how we should translate that, and scapegoat I think is, is just fine, is that this animal is the bearer of the sin for the nation, and he is led outside the camp far away where he cannot return. In fact, in in tradition, as they gathered this, to make sure that he couldn't return, the man who would carry the goat out had the responsibility of pushing him over a cliff. He's not coming back. He's gone. I wonder here about this, how this worked. The the tabernacle would be at the center of, of of the nation where they sent up all their tents. And this man would start in the center and he'd walk out the tabernacle, outside of the the village. And I wonder if the people lined the streets to see that goat go. This is supposed to be a somber day for them, a a sad day for them. We'll we'll talk about that in in, in a little bit. But I wonder if they cheered. Oh, there it goes. It's going. My sin. It's leaving the, 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 the tribe. It's going away. That goat is carrying it off. There goes my adultery. There goes my abortion. There goes the abuse. Outside the camp, away, never to return. They must have been happy to see it leave. Did they cheer as it walked by? Now, verses 23 through 28 tell us uh, about some of the, the cleanup and more sacrifices. Um, there's this burnt offering that must be presented. And verse, in verses 29 through 34, we have how the people are to practice this, how they're to prepare for this. This is to be a lasting ordinance, verse 29 says, for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves. Um, originally this meant fasting, uh, other practices were added to it. Deny yourselves and do not do any work, whether native born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from sweet words, all your sins. 
It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting, and the altar, and for the priests, and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. For everyone, for everyone, every sin cleansed, washed away, sent away, gone. This is the day. This is the greatest day. This is the day when the Israelites, they must have longed for this. Everyone was clean. Everyone in the whole camp is, is pure. All the sins are removed. For this day, this day, they are holy people living in the presence of holy God. This must have been an excellent day for them. And here's where you're supposed to object. You're supposed to say, but it's only one day. There's 365 more days. What about the next day? What about the, the uh, 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 eighth day of the tenth month? What about when someone steps on a stink bug or a baby is born? They may be clean for one day, but then they're going to go right back into it. What good is a clean day if it doesn't last? And that objection, that sense of disappointment in this one day, is what the author of Hebrews uses to explain to us what Jesus did on the cross. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, if you would, chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to spend the rest of our time uh, in this passage. I'm going to read several verses from Hebrews chapter 9. You'll find it on page 1209, I believe, in your pew Bibles, uh, if you want to follow along. Hebrews is the last big book in the New Testament before the book of Revelation. So if you're at the end of Revelation, go a few pages to the left, and you'll find Hebrews chapter 9. Someday we're going to work our way through the book of uh, Hebrews, but I thought that we should do Leviticus first, so we're getting ready for it. Uh, And the subject of chapter 9 is how Jesus Christ's death on the cross is like only better than what happened on the Day of Atonement. In fact, he refers to the Day of Atonement. Look at at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. He describes the most holy place. And then he takes the dodge that I'm going to look at the end of verse 5. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. (laughs) That's the word that makes every sermon listener say amen. Okay, verse 6. Verse 6. When everything had been arranged, he's talking about the Day of Atonement. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but... Only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. Now skip down here to verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of creation. The the tabernacle where Aaron served was a copy of heaven. And Jesus did not enter the copy. He entered heaven itself. That will become clear in just a minute. Verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. 
thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. One more passage. Skip down to verse uh, 23. Actually, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all. At the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. If I was in the habit of of marking my Bible, I would underline underline those words here, once for all. In verse 26, once for all sin, once for all time, the Lord Jesus enters the most holy place, God's presence with his own blood. And, and like the people in Leviticus were to respond through ceasing their work and self-denial, the call of the Bible is to respond to Christ's sacrifice through faith, dependent, reliant trust on Christ's death. You can be clean. It's the promise of the the Levitical law. You can be clean on the Day of Atonement, one day when the high priest takes the blood in and the goat leads. Yet now, the good news of the gospel is you can be clean forever because Jesus Christ, who is the high priest, who is the atonement, who is the sacrifice himself, who is the scapegoat, has offered himself once for all, once for all sin. The sin has left because of what Christ has done. Now I want to mention that this, as we finish here, how Leviticus and, and more importantly Christ's crosswork is meant to shape the way that you respond to lingering shame. I don't think I can help those memories from coming to your mind, but what should you do when the sin comes back? Two suggestions. Number one, remember that God has provided payment. Remember that God has provided payment. Whose idea was it in Leviticus 16 and whose idea was it in the New Testament in Hebrews 9 for uh, atonement to be made this way? Who set this up? This is not something that human beings dreamed up. This is not a fake religion where people are trying to impress the gods. This is God's own provision. He has provided it. It is his uh, work, his idea, his ordained plan. His instructions, his prescription, he made provisions. You know, sometimes lingering shame can drive a very understandable impulse, the impulse to try to fix what you have broken. I'm not sure you, you consciously say to this to yourself, but, but maybe you do. I can fix this. I can make this better. I may have cheated, but now I will be the best husband, the best wife ever. I may have aborted a baby, so I'm going to be the world's best mother. I can fix this. I can make up for this. I can compensate for this. 
I may have been abusive, but now I'm going to be, or absent, and now I'm going to be the most loving parent ever imagined. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to take care of this. But you cannot repair the damage. You cannot fix this. Yesterday I was listening to the radio and they had an interview with a man who was, uh, just wrote a new book about Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker was one of the greatest saxophone players uh, ever, a phenomenally uh, skilled jazz player. He, uh, people would be spellbound as they would listen to him improvise. You can buy his recordings still and listen to Charlie Parker. Well, Charlie Parker was uh, a, an excellent musician and a rotten human being. Um, when Charlie Parker graduated from high school, uh, he, he married his high school sweetheart. Um, soon after that, his uh, heroin addiction started, and soon after that, he abandoned his wife and the son that they had together. Uh, one of his, his friends said, Charlie Parker was unfaithful to everything in his life but his music. And his friend said something very interesting about Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker had the idea that he could make up for everything bad that he had done if he gave the world something beautiful. That's a sweet sentiment in, in some ways. Charlie Parker certainly succeeded. If anybody did, Charlie Parker succeeded. He gave the world something beautiful. But I'd, I'd like to talk to Charlie Parker's son. You hear that beautiful music that your dad made? Yep. Does it, does it compensate you for his abandonment? What do you think his son would say? You can't fix it. God himself has acted. And throughout Hebrews, he commands us to boldly take his provision as your own. God has provided payment. You can't. The second thing to do here when the sin comes back. Look again and again to Christ. Look again and again to Christ. The problem with lingering guilt is that it takes all of your attention and absorbs all of your mental and emotional energy when it's supposed to be on Christ. This is what Robert Murray McShane meant when he said, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Focus your attention. Lingering shame should make you consider again our loving Savior. We're in the midst of training our dog. <laughs> and one of the commands that she's supposed to uh, learn that we say over and over again to her is, look at me, look at me, look at me. Uh, we're trying to teach her to pay attention to us and what we're trying to, to, to command her to do rather than to the other thing that she wants to pay attention to. She's a dog. She's got ADD. Right? Well, the thing that we're working on right now is, is we're trying to uh, teach her to uh, sit and stay until we successfully put the food dish in front of her before she takes a hand off. So we have her sit and uh, stay. What, you have food in your hand. What do you think our dog, poor Stella, what is she looking at? She's not looking at me. She's looking at the food. In fact, if you hold it long enough, she starts to drool. Things fall out of her mouth. She's standing there. And we say it over and over again to her. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. This is where her attention is. I want her to look at me because I am her master. And I want her to know that her faithfulness actually should be to me even more than it is to this food. And throughout the Bible, Jesus Christ says, look at me. 
Look at me. Not at your lingering guilt. Not at the sin. Look at me and turn your guilt to gladness. These things are not going to erase the earthly consequences of your sins. It's not going to fix all broken relationships, but they will help you see your sin from the perspective of the cross. We're going to take the Lord's Supper again in a couple of weeks. We do it every month. It's the time we celebrate what Christ has done. We look back on the atoning day. Don't come to market with, with guilt or with shame, but solemn joy once for all, once for all, once for all. All sin erased. The sacrifice made. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I thank you for your great kindness. Your great kindness to uh, men and women and and teenagers in this congregation who, uh, though they, they think about the sin, though that it is before them, Thank you for your great grace that you have uh, sought them and bought them and brought them to a congregation, to, to a place where we, as best we can, celebrate the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, you know uh, what happens more than anybody here in the minds and hearts of all of us when we sit in quiet moments of meditation and and what we think about. And I I know that there are men and women who, in silence, it's, it's a rut, it's a mental rut, they return over and over again to the sin. Oh God, I pray that by your grace you would turn that... Uh, recurring sorrow into solemn joy. Gratitude for this, our Savior, who once for all offered himself. Would you do that transformative work in us? We want to be people who, who join in, in, in the praises of what's happening in, in heaven. Oh, praise to the redeeming lamb for the sacrifice that has been made. We want to be those people who exalt in that thoroughly and wholly. So turn the morning that recurs into joy, please. Lift the burdens of, of my brothers and sisters according to your kindness. We ask together in the name of Jesus, saying, Amen.